Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I'm delighted to have with us today Marisa Farabao, who is the SVP and Chief Supply Chain Officer at Advent Health. Advent Health is a very large healthcare provider with 80,000 employees serving 6 million plus patients every year with 51 hospital campuses operating in nine states in the US. And Marisa generously decided to share a couple of interesting case studies with us on the way they run their supply chain. So it's my pleasure. I'm delighted to have her today and thanks for joining us. Hello, Marisa. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So first and foremost, maybe let's start a little bit with yourself. And, and I know that you actually started your career as an industrial engineer in a very sweet, literally sweet company at Hershey's. And now you've progressed. Obviously, you've built yourself a career in the healthcare side. Maybe tell us a little bit first, how did you end up being an industrial engineer? How did, how did that come to play early on in your career? Well, thank you for that question. I actually grew up in Gainesville, Florida, and there is a university town. So University of Florida is in that town. And one day in my physics class, when I was a senior, we had an opportunity to spend the day at the University of Florida if we wanted to go shadow an engineer. And so it was a great reason to get out of high school for a day and get on college campus. But I had to pick an engineering that I wanted to go shadow. And so I went, remember very vividly a list of all the different types of engineering that I could possibly want to shadow. And, you know, chemical, mechanical, some of these other ones, they just weren't, they weren't exactly what I was, was thinking about. And so when I got to industrial, I remember looking at my teacher and asking him, what does an industrial engineer do? And he said, well, it's kind of like a business engineer and they do a little bit of process too. They learn a lot about the business. And I thought, that's it. That's what I, that's what I want to do, go shadow. And so I had an opportunity. I, I came home that day. I told my dad, I said, dad, I'm going to go shadow industrial engineer at the University of Florida. And he said to me, Marisa, I studied industrial engineering. And I was like, no way. I had no idea. So I ended up loving it. I ended up sticking with it the whole way through. It was a great experience, met a lot of wonderful people, learned a lot. There were some hard nights, lots of studying, but made it through. And I'm so, I'm so grateful for that time in my life and being able to ha have encouragement from folks around me to continue it. And, and it was, it's been a great field. I've, I've learned a lot and taken a lot with me. No, I, I, I bet you. And this reminds me of, you know, you not knowing that your father had studied industrial engineer. I, I, my father is a land measurements. I, I don't know if you're aware with, I wasn't aware for the longest of times. And I knew that he's a university professor. And up till about 20, I was 25 or 26. I had no clue what he was doing. So luckily I went to one of his classes at some point. I'm like, oh, okay, so this is what, <laughs> but in your case, it was actually the same thing. So that's even more interesting. And, and how did you, so from food, or chocolates to healthcare. I guess what what inflection points or what what made you choose that trajectory? Yes. Yeah, so after I graduated with my undergrad at University of Florida, I was ready to get out of Gainesville. I had been there for all of my life and had the opportunity to go and become an industrial engineer at Hershey Foods, as you've mentioned. That was a wonderful experience. I learned so much about how companies work, about how 
things are made, how manufacturing works. And that has served me very well in the rest of my career, understanding how products are manufactured and the companies that support that manufacturing, how that world works. It was, I learned a lot about HR and IT and finance and again in general, just how, how companies are structured and support their core business. About four and a half years in, I was doing a cross-training assignment. I was spending about a year in the Poconos. I, I lived in, in Harrisburg or Hershey, Pennsylvania, and then had an opportunity to do a cross-training assignment in the Poconos as a shift supervisor. So I was on the line. My shift started at 6.30 in the morning. I didn't work there, so I had to leave at about 4.30 every morning to get over there, across the mountains. Sometimes it was raining or sleeting or fog, and I had to spend the night the, the night before. I was doing my master's at that time, too, so that was in Harrisburg. I had to come back into Harrisburg for my classes at night and then head back over for my early shifts. But it was, I, I learned a lot, and it was a great, a great period in my life. There was also this piece of, of my life that inside of me that just felt called to the healthcare industry. And I don't know why that was. I think it emerged from wanting to help people and knowing that I didn't need to necessarily be a clinician to do that. But how could I help people through the skills that I did have? and wanted to support healthcare from that standpoint. I will share though that being an industrial engineer in healthcare is, is especially you know, 15 or so years ago, was not that common. There are not a lot of industrial engineers that go into healthcare. And they're called management engineers. They're not even called industrial engineers. It's a whole different name that many people don't study management engineering in school. So you don't even know that that segment really exists. Conversely, you know, at Hershey, engineering and engineers are so prolific, like there's so many of them everywhere, us everywhere. It's very natural for engineers to fall into manufacturing industrial spaces. And healthcare is very different. Many of the people that are in the administrative roles in healthcare went and studied a master's of healthcare administration, not an MBA or not a process, you know, a process space. But what happened was one day I was living with my roommate working in Hershey and she mentioned that there was a job in Jacksonville, Florida working for Shands, which is now UF Health. And I thought to myself, okay, I, I liked Florida. I lived in Gainesville. Jacksonville is a couple hours away from there. It would be great. And I got online and I applied for, I saw the management engineering position and it was not Jacksonville, it was Gainesville. So here I am, I've left Gainesville and now I have an opportunity to, to come back to Gainesville. That was not really in my plans at the time, but it was a great opportunity to get into healthcare as an industrial engineer. When I got into my first job in healthcare, it was like learning a brand new language. I had no idea what people were talking about, how they were communicating. It was acronyms everywhere that I did not know and understand. It definitely took me a couple of years to just grow that nomenclature and understanding of what people were sharing. But I found though in healthcare, that the contribution margin of somebody who did that work, the process redesign, or looking for efficiencies, or looking for 
how to make a process flow easier that you know would give a greater throughput that the ability for someone to impact that work was enormous because there hasn't been that type of mindset or visibility in the healthcare field and practice as much as there has been in manufacturing. So I, I like to tell folks that, you know, in healthcare, that you're not just picking the low hanging fruit. The fruit is on the ground. It's a matter of how much you can put in your basket and do at, at once. There's so much opportunity for, for uh, process redesign and improvement. I love it. And this reminds me of, um, so I was about a year ago, I was in the UK at a conference and my, uh, well, he became my good friend, Simon. He had spent most of his adult life working in supermarkets, distribution centers, Tesco's and all of that. And then the last two years, what had he done? And we'll get to that in a moment with, with, with your experience as well, Marisa. What he had done, he had fell into COVID vaccine distribution. So like in, in some ways, you know, you had to go from industrial engineering to learning all the buzzwords. <laughs> and That's exactly right. Of healthcare. He had to... But he was actually the, I mean, not that he had to, he did it on purpose. And also there was a reality that we've gone through all of us in COVID that who had the knowledge of distributing at scale a vaccine that needed minus 70 degrees. I mean, there's no such thing before. So of course you need to some to get some supply chain professionals that dealt with similar enough <laughs> of a product, yeah, whatever it might be to, to comprehend it. So Simon was that person that did that and he did that well. well. Love your analogy with the fruit is on the ground. So maybe tell us more now, expanding a little bit into the pluses, minuses, well, not pluses, minuses, but differences. Yeah, running a supply chain for a food company, for example, running a healthcare supply chain that you are today. Tell us a little bit more and specifically on that point on the fruit is on the ground. And there's a lot of things that can be improved in a healthcare supply chain. Well, sure. And, and I understand what you're saying about quickly coming up to speed with your friend. It sounds like he was resourceful and, and really just lean into learning new things, right? And I think that's what, at least for me, my career has been all, all about, is about how, how to really lean into what the questions are ahead of me and then learn as much as I can and build, build from there. You know, in manufacturing, I would say, one of the key differences is that you are responsible that the manufacturing is the output of the work that the entire company rallies around. Okay, so everything about what the company does virtually is really just rallied around getting that output. And so when you think about the capital investments that are made in manufacturing, at every level, they really are make, making an impact to making a product either faster, more seamlessly, different. And that in and of itself is a link in the supply chain, right? Because that product, all those pieces that went into making that product or all those links in the supply chain, now feeds into a, fin a, into a finished good somewhere and is consumed later on. Yes. So conversely, in healthcare, we are not manufacturing a product. We are a massive consumer of finished goods. And so everybody's links in their chains feed into my chain, 
So if there's any link that's disrupted for the thousands or hundreds of thousands of different items that in healthcare we procure, it's a disruption for healthcare at the end of that, of that chain. In healthcare, our capital investments are not all about the supply chain. They're all about the service that we are delivering to our patients and our communities. And so to that end, lobbying for capital, you know, where we would maybe be investing in a new ER, emergency room, or investing in a new piece of radiology equipment that can serve our patients. I have to basically lobby against that type of investment. Whereas if you think back to the manufacturing example, those folks, every investment that they're making is really an improvement in the supply chain at some degree. And so in, in, in a way, the healthcare supply chain is incredibly complicated because we rely on all of the supply chains upstream to be able to do the work that we do. Now, we sit in supply chain, we sit in the middle of needing to ensure that our patients have exactly what they need when they need it, and it's where it needs to be. And so if you think about all, that, all of what needs to happen in order to make sure that 100% that of the time, you have what you need because at the end of the, the work that we do in healthcare, there is a, a patient, a person, a mom, a dad, a sister, a brother, a child. And there's not the ability for us in supply chain to live in this incredibly lean world where 98% of the time we're good, but 2% of the time we're not. We don't live like that. Mm -hmm. We don't operate like that. We operate with 100% of the time, you need to have what you need to have. And so in the role that my team and I play, we live in between the patient at the end, which isn't very far away from our world. You know, the doctor and the patient, you know, we, we might get phone calls. Yes. And in between the suppliers who are supplying us with all of the right materials and goods that we use for our patients. And it's real in that place. It's the rubber meeting the road in that spot. We are having to ensure that all of our upstream suppliers have gotten us everything that we need and having to ensure that those products are exactly where they need to be because a patient's life is at the end of that. So it's a very real, it's, and it's, that, that is, I think, one of the biggest differences between the industries really is healthcare supply chain is very different than manufacturing supply chain. And, and because of everything I, I shared there, the work is different. You know, we spend a lot of time working with clinical colleagues around what it is that they need in order to do their job. In manufacturing, it's a clarity around the raw materials that you need in order to do the job that you need to do. You know how much waste you're going to typically use. You know when you're going to manufacture. You have demand planning cycles. You have production cycles. You understand exactly the materials, the packaging materials, all of that. You understand all of that upstream. In healthcare, 
We think there are demand trends, but it's a different type of knowledge than in manufacturing. We don't always know what's going to walk through the door. And so you have to plan for everything that could happen. Mm. And on that note, COVID happened and it's almost uh, <laughs> unplannable. And I'd love, um, and we talked a little bit offline, yeah, I'd love for you to share a little bit with us, Marisa, maybe one or two examples, case studies that made you most proud. I'm sure that you had many sleepless nights, you and the team during that well, the height of it, we're still, COVID is still not gone, yeah, but okay, now we've more or less managed it. But at the height of it, tell us one or two most proud moments in which you managed to keep it going, even if everything was in the air. Oh, man, COVID was a very big test to healthcare supply chain. When you think about what was happening in China, and the, so you had the, the shortages, you know, you had your supply dropping of PPE because manufacturing was being shut down in China and China in the Wuhan province was very, very big place where we were receiving many of our, our PPE supplies. So you had supply dropping and demand rising. And you, that is a recipe for in the healthcare supply chain space, very, you know, big, big shortage. And when those signals started going off, and I would say that in healthcare supply chain, our demand signals to our manufacturers are not a hardwired thing as in the manufacturing space. We do not have our systems seamlessly talking to one another in healthcare supply chain, as I have seen in manufacturing, where there's a lot more clarity and visibility into what you're going to need. So in healthcare supply chain, in that January, February timeframe, the intel that we were getting was much more verbal. You know, we had, we had suppliers beginning to call us and say, hey, we think there's going to be a disruption here. Almost like not sure how you guys should handle it, but we're seeing something and you should be aware of that. And so as, as we started to really begin to see the impact of what that, you know, of what was, what was happening. We also started to see that this was not going to be something solved in a week. It was not an emergency management crisis, you know, one week kind of get on it and then get done. It was going to be a marathon. I am so proud of how our teams collaborated internally and worked. And what I mean by that is there alluded to earlier that in our world, we have to tie closely with our clinical folks. And this was no different. COVID was an important need for operations and finance and clinical and supply chain all to have to come together and re-engineer processes overnight and figure out how we can source understand what our needs are, understand what our demand might be, understand our processes internally for onboarding new suppliers. All of those things had to be re-engineered overnight. Mm. So when I think about what I'm, you know, one of the most things I'm proud of is I'm most proud of how our teams, not just supply chain, but beyond supply chain internally at Advent Health came together focused on what we needed to focus on and managed through that crisis successfully. The other thing I'm incredibly proud of is 
you know, we, we were beginning to source hundreds of thousands of units of, of products. And what we were seeking to do as an organization was internally set up, basically overnight, the ability to centrally receive tons of different PPE and then proactively push that PPE out to any of our facilities when we saw that their on-hand balance, their days on hand, fell below 30 days on hand. And we were managing this across multiple categories. So you think about you know, gloves, gowns, masks, different types of masks, all of those different coveralls, all of those different products that were very critical for our frontline staff at the time of COVID. We wanted to manage all those different categories, have the ability to internally receive signal of where those on-hand balances were across our 50-plus hospitals, centrally manage new product that was coming in, cross-dock it, and then proactively send it back out. And so in order to do that, we did not have a logistics facility that could manage that in Orlando for us at the time. And so it was through a network and relationships and kindness you know, that, our, that our city supported us. And we were able to commandeer the Amway Center, which if you've been to Orlando, that's our major events center that the, our Orlando Magic basketball team plays in. Many of our conferences, different musical speakers, et cetera, all come and, and, and do work. And it's a huge center. And we moved into that space and we're able to set up systems, you know, on site there, set up location mapping where we were going to move everything to. And we moved over 40,000 pallets of PPE in about 40 days. And we brought pallets in, as I mentioned, staged them, cross-stocked them, put them, you know, moved them with multiple product, PPE products, and then sent that out to our facilities in Texas, our facilities in Kansas. I was incredibly proud of the entire team that really supported that operation. It was an unbelievable operation that stood up overnight and then stood down overnight as we needed to give that space back. And you know what's really been the most gratifying parts of that, and I, I take these comments on behalf of our whole team because it's for our whole team, but when we talk to different nurse executives or nurse leaders or clinicians that were on the floor about that time, they tell us even today that they felt so supported and that they felt like among everything they had to worry about, having PPE was not one of those things. And that's impressive given the state of how everything was happening during that period of time. So, those are just two examples. I would offer one third one. It's a fun story. You know, we were on pursuit of N95 masks in many different avenues back then. And at one point, we got a tip that there was masks down in the Miami area. And so we got on a flight, flew down, tried to get into a warehouse, were unable to actually get into the warehouse, had to fly back empty-handed. But in hindsight, I'm not sure that there were ever really any masks there, but it's a fun story. It all worked out fine, but you kind of think about like that other duties as assigned portion of your job description that you never thought you'd be, be doing, but it's been, it was a great team, team experience. 
No, absolutely. And I actually want to, to zero in a little bit on, on a couple of things that you said. So maybe number one, I have limited exposure to healthcare, but I do have some and um, we have done some work with a couple of laboratories. It's, it's not exactly the same, but anyway, some large laboratories scanning medical diagnostic type of a company in Europe, which I will not name, but I know that system-wise, it's fairly decentralized, each lab for almost for themselves. It's, you know, I, uh, I'm i not saying it's the same in Advent Health, but in large, what you said, healthcare is not state-of-the-art. It is not the FMCG that does demand sensing, knows what product is off the shelf of the supermarket, when to, there's none of that. And the fact that, you know, I mean, it's barely now coming up. And the fact that you are able to do that with the PPE is just fantastic. Now, my question is, were you able to then make permanent some of these things? Because it's still extremely useful for reducing driving efficiencies, reducing waste, knowing, you know, which which hospitals have the right utensil on, on hand or not. Further to, I mean, once that crisis of PPE exhausted itself? That's a great question. And the answer is yes. We realized that we wanted more control over inventory through COVID. But we also realized that we, from a resiliency standpoint, want a partner as well. You know, so we do want partnerships that allow for you know, the best of both of both partners to emerge. And I think create a deeper resiliency plan when you when you do have a partner. But that being said, we also wanted control over our inventory. So we're actually in the the process of building a larger distribution center right now. And part of that to get to specifically to the question that you're asking, but after that foundational construction and work is completed, because that needs to be completed, the control tower or demand planning sort of aspect of what we're, what we're looking at is going to sit and, and really sit on, on top of that, but not just for our, our distribution center, but also understanding what's at all of our different facilities across the facilities. And so, you know, as I mentioned, we've got hundreds of thousands of items. It's not just, you know, five or 10 different things to manage. From that standpoint, COVID, I think COVID was interesting because it started off with a handful of items and then grew into more back orders, et cetera. And we're still managing through that. There's a lot of disruption in healthcare supply chain still today. You know, to the point about the process there, we have a hardwired process in right now that specifically looks at supply chain disruption in healthcare in our facilities that came out of COVID. So that process that we had to stand up to even talk about what was happening in our facilities with the handful of COVID-related items is now an ongoing hardwired process in across multiple different teams to come together and manage any dis types of disruptions that are happening today. So I think there are lots of bits of pieces that we're able to take with us. And, you know, when we think about our own, our own supply chain strategic plan, you know, we, we do an annual plan and gather as a team of leaders to put that plan together. Resiliency is at the core of that plan. And I think that that word translates into a lot of different areas, including labor, including 
you know, our, the products that we have on the shelf, including redundancies of systems, backup power, like all of these elements of resiliency. It's beyond just the supply chain aspects, thinking about it at a more holistic level. But the term itself, I believe, makes it into as a, our strategic plan as a key component because of COVID. Mm. COVID taught us we have to think like this all the time. Yes. Have a backup to the backup to the backup. On the point of ESG, which is a huge topic for all organizations, love to also ask you how you're tackling it at Advent Health. What are some case studies, some initiatives that you've taken in that direction? Yes, thank you for that question. We actually have been on quite a journey at Advent Health. It's been an opportunity for me to somewhat take off my supply chain hat and work side by side with our chief investment officer as a dyad leadership model to help to really put together what is the environmental sustainability roadmap for Advent Health. We've, I think, done a lot of things over the years as an organization, but I think more recently trying to lean in and come up with our comprehensive plan and roadmap for the future. You know, I've learned a lot. Talk about, you know, new terminology and acronyms. You know, when I stepped into this space too, it's been wonderful to really lean in and learn a new language when it comes to environmental sustainability, carbon footprinting, all the elements of how to reach reductions in our carbon footprint. And so We've been on a roadmap. We recently, last year, signed the HHS pledge, which pledges to reduce our carbon footprint by 50%, uh, scope one and two, by 2030, and then working towards getting to net zero by 2050. And so that's a lofty goal when you think about scope three included in that goal as well. For scope one and two, we've done a lot of work around, you know, what is, our, what is the state of our current emission footprint look like? Where is all of that coming from? And then beginning to layer in different levers, if you will, of how to reduce by that 50%. And so we're looking at our plant equipment. You know, what is the equipment that we're, we're running within our facilities and are they most, the most energy efficient? We're looking at on-site solar. You know, how are we going to be able to build more solar options within our own facilities? And off-site solar too, you know, partnering with folks that are doing a lot of their own development on off-site solar. And so really looking at trying to bring in new sources of clean energy into Advent Health, which is very important to reaching that, that goal. In addition, when we think about scope three, that's really where the supply chain yes. area is, you know, and that's a significant portion of our overall carbon footprint. And so What's been very impactful and fun and exciting for me has been working with our supplier community to raise the awareness of their own carbon footprint that they pass on to us and really beginning to talk with them about what their plans are. How are they planning on addressing this in the future years? And I think that if if our supplier community feels like this is important to their customers, which is the provider community, then it's going to be important for them. And, and many of them have been on this type of a journey, 
working as global companies. They, they've been on it in different areas of the, of the globe. But I think in the U.S. we have an opportunity to raise that bar, you know, and raise that, that discussion. And so mm -hmm. it's, been a great, it's been a great journey so far. I, I'm always surprised with the spectrum of folks out their knowledge base out there, you know, so we've got some suppliers, you know, and, and partners in the community that are very aware and they've already got aggressive plans for their own manufacturing and they've already got targets for their lines and manufacturing lines and it's very, you can tell it's a very high focus for them. And then there's other suppliers in the community that don't even know what ESG stands for, you know, and so it's, it's a very broad spectrum. But I think that it's through awareness that people are going to begin to, to join. You know, when, when you think about the carbon footprinting that happens today, the accounting, you know, in order to get to what that percentage of the supply chain portion is really at a high level today. You know, we take spend and you, you have a multi multiplication factor that you apply to it. But for us at Advent Health, how do we begin to go on that sophistication journey and allow for hybrid methodology to, st to start to emerge? Meaning, if I've got some suppliers that are really on that journey and doing a lot of work, I want to be able to start to give them credit for that work and start to account for their carbon footprint that they're passing along to us in a different way than as, as the rest of the supplier community begins to catch up. And I think that folks, again, I think that's incentive for folks to really lean into, into this work. So it's been a great journey. I've, again, I've learned a lot. We have a very small but very mighty team. They do excellent work and have brought me along on this journey. And I look forward to seeing where Advent Health goes with this in the future. I think it's, a, it's, it's on a great trajectory. Glad to hear, and well, David beat Goliath, right? So uh, small is uh, small, uh, small is big. Now on the topic, uh, last topic of our conversation, Marissa, on the topic of talent, wanted to also get your perspective in terms of how do you build talent at Advent Health? How do you build the next successes in your team? How do you think about those aspects of succession and building talent perspective? That is such a great question. And as the leader over this space, I think about this more than I think about anything else, because as we all know, our, great, our greatest assets are our teams you know, and the folks that are on our team. And so this has been a space that I've really, we as a team have really embraced and thought about everything from, you know, I think that when we think about succession planning, I don't just think about it, you know, at, at the highest levels. I think about that in every single level of our team. And so how is every single level ready to move on to you know, who, who in each level and, and how is every single level preparing to move on to the next level and what they're going to do? And who's backfilling into that level? And you start to really just see that it's not something that you can do in a vacuum. It's something that takes every level to be engaged on, on this journey on. You know, everyone, every leader in here, in, in our team, has to think like that because it's their level that will be brought up by the next person that moves into that space. And so we spend a lot of time trying to really put together roadmaps 
and even just thinking about cross training. Mm. You know, when we have positions in our own team that, you know, that open up, I've never seen so many as we have now moves within our own space, right? So within our, within our own supply chain space, we have dominoes that are happening all the time. You know, folks that are moving into this sourcing space and now moving into operations and then moving into supportive operations and moving into corporate, but moving into the field. All of that is very important. And, and as I share with my team, those types of experiences and movement is what we want. We want folks to have perspective beyond their world that they're necessarily in in that moment because that is going to allow for unlocking of different value in the work that they do that they wouldn't be able to do if they didn't know downstream this activity matters. And so I need to be thinking about that also when I'm building my process and, and, and support. And so it's also giving the leaders the deep breath that this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing to let, you know, have our team move from different teams to different teams. This is a great thing. We want this type of activity to, to happen. And, and then every, you know, with that in mind, with that, I think with that culture in mind, people support and promote that type of work. You know, so when, when folks get into our space, we want them to feel like they've got different paths and that they've, they have different things they can do. If they love what they do, they can certainly keep doing it. They don't have to do something different. But we want them to know that that's an option. I think that getting into our space is also very important. You know? So I think creating a culture that folks internally within our larger system want to join is very important. And then creating a culture that folks externally that don't work at Advent Health today, but they want to come join us, that's very important too. And we spend a lot of time there. We'll have people who are more mature in their career come in. And, and we're very also focused on working with higher education on residency and intern programs so that we're building that pipeline at the very beginning. Yes. There's not a major out there that's really healthcare supply chain. So, you know, trying to get out there, be present in, our, in the higher education areas that are in our states and in our backyards is important so that we're starting to build an interest. We take on a lot of senior projects. I want folks who are doing their senior design projects to come through Advent Health and know and understand what healthcare supply chain is all about. It's just driving interest, it's driving awareness, and we think, we think a lot about it every day at all of our different levels. Mm. And may, maybe, maybe you can look in some of this industrial engineering. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it I seems sit to, on, to, yes. It seems to work well, uh, Marissa. <laughs> That is exactly right. Um, a final, final question from my side. What would be one piece of career advice that you would give to younger professionals coming out of school, perhaps, and looking to make it to the CSEO level like yourself, to the head of supply chain? What would be one thing that helped you the most in your career? My dad always told me 
Marisa, you could have the best ideas, but if you cannot communicate it effectively, it's not worth anything. And so the advice I would give to folks is hone sharp communication skills at all levels. Figure out how to effectively, concisely communicate a message. Mm. Love it. <laughs> Beyond the acronyms. <laughs> That's right. So that the audience can understand it. Is, it is banned. It is banned to use three, four, five, two letter <laughs> abbreviations. That's right. Um, love it. No, that's I mean I'm I'm laughing a little bit. We've we've uh, recently put out a book and that that piece of advice was given repeatedly by by the CEOs and COs that we we interviewed and it is common across industries and and in fairness we we've mostly done it on on manufacturing and supply chain leaders but I I'm pretty sure that if we had done it on CFOs they would have said the same or if <laughs> this ability to communicate I love your message is key and I cannot I cannot highlight it enough so Marisa, thanks a lot for, for being with us today. Thanks a lot for all the sharing and keep up the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcotglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five Star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help you.